How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to episode 60 of The Way of the Wolf. We have a special guest on the show today. This gentleman I've known for a few years now. He works with Chris Tarver at TF Supplements. And it's kind of funny backstory. Before I had the opportunity to meet him, Chris was talking to me about this new employee that he'd hired that's off the charts, brilliant, reads all these books. And he fast forward a few weeks and I go into the store and they're both in there. Chris turns to me and says, hey, this is the guy that I was telling you about that reads. So I got excited to meet Josiah Plumley. And we're going to talk about some very deep, meaningful, and impactful conversations today. But Josiah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's an honor. <clears throat> Josiah, tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, so <laughs> this is wide-ranging, uh, but I'll, I will attempt to keep it focused. I'm highly caffeinated, so that might be, issue, might be the issue. Uh, so I am the oldest of seven kids. Um, Parents met in the Air Force, uh, grew up. Uh, by the time I was six, we were poor, and it just kind of got worse for quite a while. Uh, so for a majority of my childhood, I uh, was in poverty, brief stint of homelessness, lived in the projects um, for two years. So um, definitely have memories of, of, of that life, and that's informed a lot of how I've turned out and approached life. Um, left, went to college, uh, and joined the military. Uh, nothing fancy, didn't kick any doors of satellite, radio, uh, telephone. Um, and uh, ended up becoming somewhat of a trainer uh, for a lot of my fellow soldiers. Uh, and then finally became the trainer for the the, uh, the entire battalion uh, in, in the sense of helping the people that were having a hard time passing the PT test uh, get to the point where they could pass the PT test. Um, so what have I covered here? So basically poverty, <laughs> uh, going in to get a big degree, going to the army. Uh, and the army is basically where I found, found fitness in a systematic way. Uh, so one of the reasons that I became the de facto trainer and then the official one uh, was because I took the problem of push-ups and made it way more complicated than it need to be, needed to be and then systematized every single point and did the same with sit-ups and did that same thing for the run. Uh, so I was able to take break these things apart into practical ways to make each section more efficient and therefore help people that were just working their ass off but not really getting any results uh, find their weak point in the chain and be able to overcome that. Um, and then uh, about six years ago, uh, moved to Houston, started working at uh, LA Fitness pretty briefly after that. Um, just started with Chris Tarver two and a half, little less than two and a half years ago. Uh, I managed the store and we've got some exciting things coming there. It's a bit scattered, but is that what you're yeah, looking for? Yeah, yeah. That, that's perfect. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the books that you've read. Now, I'm sure <laughs> that that is a galactic can of worms that we're, uh, we're about yeah. to open, but what what was the number that Chris cited to me in terms of the number of books that you read on an annual basis, roughly? Uh, that year it was sixty. Oh, that year it was sixty. Okay, all right. Yeah. 
So a little bit more than one a week. Mm-hmm. That's 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 moving moving through them. Is that a common yeah. year for you in terms of the volume? Uh, it was yes. Uh, it's is it's going to be it's it's fluctuated. Um, but like this year so far, I've read almost three thousand pages. Um, I'm I'm on a research binge, okay. so that's that's relatively roughly where I'm. Where what I types of to. books do you like to read? So, I I'm very curious as a person. So it's been a wide range. If you look at my library, it's it uh, anything from theology to practical business um, applications to uh, sales, uh, speaking, writing philosophy history some some fiction um usually the classics if i can and then what else is on my shelf way too many J.R. token books um political philosophy has been something that i've been into of late nutrition training uh, a little bit of everything okay all right yeah you have also written your own book i did we're going to talk about this yeah so for those of you watching, you can see the book is named For- Forged from Nothing, How to Create the Body You Want When You're Broke. Yes. Now, one of the things that I did recently with Terry Weaver on is I had him read some from his book that was very well received. Would you feel comfortable reading a bit from yours? 100%. Yeah. All right. Here you go. Okay. So, let's go through here. All right. <clears throat> can you hear me? I exist. Great. All right. Uh, hmm. I grew up poor and bore witness to all the stresses that come with it. Which important bills could be paid? Would it be possible to eat fewer times per day to save money? Uh, there was just enough money in the budget to pay for gas to get to work and pay and back and to pay for the gas to get to work and back. The stress on our family was both acute and chronic. If somebody had come into our family and lectured our eating habits when we had a hard enough time even putting food on the table, they would have received a withering look of anger and frustration. Well deserved. The situation was similar for many of the people we knew. Eating healthy was for rich people with cushy jobs and too much time on their hands. Organic kale is the last thing on your mind when you're trying to figure out how to get enough gas to get to work uh, or when you're shivering over those events. Uh, wondering if you're breathing in black mold. Uh, that happens sometimes. Uh, the last feeling in the world you have in times like these is the feeling of power. Uh, broke is not just a lack of money. Broke is also a feeling, a feeling of having nothing to spare. It almost always refers to a lack of money. However, much more than money, it ultimately encompasses a perceived lack of power. Anything that is broke is either not functioning at all or not functioning the way it should. Why? Because it can't. There's something wrong, something missing, something crucial to its correct operation has been crippled. That's why we use the term broke, because that's exactly how we feel. Broke is the land of severely limited choices or no choice at all. Broke feels like and looks like powerlessness never being or having enough. Take what you know you can take. Don't spend too much time hoping or looking for something different because whatever you want, whatever you have, will never be enough to get it. You are broken. 
And that's exactly how I felt, broken. When I left to launch my own life, I thought it would be different. I was intent on new beginnings. I had next to nothing, but I optimistically saw that as a blank slate. Unfortunately, that slate wasn't completely blank. I was seeing and defining my reality through a cracked and jaded screen. And I had no idea it was cracked or jaded. I just thought I was being, quote, real, unquote. Gratefully, while still in my broken state, I accidentally stumbled upon fitness. Uh, someone I looked up to posted on his social media about a great new podcast he was learning from. Barbell shrugged. Uh, curious, I looked it up. And that mention and the impulse to check it out led me down a long, winding, rocky, and beautiful road to the person I am today, uh, the industry I am in, and the way I serve others. Whenever I went through this book, thank you for reading that. Whenever I went through this, and I'm sure you've seen the little sticky notes and, and highlighted pages and things like that, there were so many powerful bits and nuggets of, of information. But I love that kind of the, the opening. That was very early on in the book, mm -hmm. just a few pages in, if I recall correctly. Right. And I appreciate how it sets the tone for the book. And lets the reader know, hey, this is where we're at. This is where I've come from. And and gives them a sense of what the book is going to be about and how it can can help them. Right. And I know that kind of answers some of these questions that I have for you. But mm -hmm. first and foremost, what prompted you to write this book? Uh, much of the – so the reason I got into fitness um, was and, – and the book is – basically all about this. Um, the reason I got into fitness was precisely because I grew up with the tacit assumption that you do not, that fitness is something that either you have to go full Rocky and, and, and run through the woods or whatever like that. Uh, if you're poor and good luck having a gym membership, uh, good luck getting a shape or eating healthy food that just wasn't in the cards. Uh, so, When I got out and started, so I'm, I'm naturally very curious. It, it, it can actually be a problem uh, in, in terms of all the tangents I'll, I'll research. Uh, but when I got onto fitness and started doing the research and listening to people that knew what they were talking about and started checking my own numbers, I realized that a lot of the assumptions that I was making about what was possible or what was within my means were just completely incorrect um so i found a gym membership wow that was so expensive uh, then i actually walked into a gym uh, and it was within the means right so wow i have gym access now didn't think that was possible um and i don't know how you how you grew up but for people that grew up poor there's just a lot of things that we just assume it's not even in our, in, in our head there's a lot of things you just assume aren't in the cards so you don't even check it out. It's it's not like, oh, I wish I could. It's just more, there's a wall there. And what's behind that wall is not something that's I'm going to find out. So I'm just going to stay doing what I do, right? Uh, so the idea behind it, uh, as I was able to do more and more things and, and break down the numbers and break down the practices and found out eventually that being healthy and living a healthy lifestyle was cheaper than the way that I was living before that opened up a lot of possibilities. Um, and that 
had me having the courage, if you will, to question a lot more things. What am I assuming uh, that just isn't so? Uh, to reference an old Mark Twain quote. So when I was working at LA Fitness, uh, I was the director of training. So I would inbound the people that came into the gym. Uh, they were curious about training and I would take them through the process, take them through their numbers, take them on a workout. And if they wanted to work with a trainer after that, we would get them started. Uh, but also I would do, because of all the work I had done with myself with learning nutrition, um, I was pretty good at it. And so I would do the nutrition coaching for the entire club, which that was a lot of people. Uh, so in doing so, I would go, I had hundreds, thousands, actually, I believe it's 5,000 by the time I left, uh, of reps of helping people and, and identifying other people's assumptions and, and breaking those down. Um, and so the book, the practical side of the book is literally me just, it, it didn't take any, any time to write. It was me just vomiting almost all the tips and tricks onto paper that I'd already done a thousand times beforehand. Uh, but the reason to go back to it, the reason I got into fitness and into serving this way to begin with is precisely because fitness was the tool that had me able to question broader assumptions coming out of a, a place of not only poverty, but a, of a, a mindset of poverty, a mindset that often comes with poverty. Um, so I know that if I can get somebody who feels like they just can't, and I realize this isn't just poverty, every class has this. Um, if I can get them to realize how much they can, they can get started on the fitness journey, they can get started on nutrition, they can change their lives and feel better about themselves. All the typical things that are absolutely true about what you would see in the fitness industry um, and people that get in shape. But more importantly to me, fitness was a way to get in a way to break past the the wall of I can't to be able to open people to a broader way of looking at life itself. Um, so fitness was never the point. Fitness was always the Trojan horse. Nutrition was never the point. Nutrition was always the Trojan horse uh, to get in and be able to say it to get people to question their assumptions. Uh, and to guide them through the process of opening up their their minds and their eyes and their hearts to, oh wow, if this is true, what else is true? And going from there. And basically, this may sound cliche, but finding a place of empowerment where they were disempowered. It very much feels like, based on what we've discussed so far, that for a large portion of your life, or at least in the past, you know, 10, 15, 20, how old are you? 31. Okay, so the past 10, 15 years, something like that, that you've focused a lot on helping others. Mm -hmm. Has that always just been a part of who you are? I would say yes. Uh, that's always been a driver for me. So even in times of my life where I was not, because I was uh, busy with school and work and the military, uh, that was what I was preparing to do. Um, so that's as much a part of me as anything yeah okay i love it okay let's shift gears a little bit we're talking about something that is 
near and dear to my heart. And, and I think part of it's just the, the friends and relationships that I've built over the years. I see this from time to time where people struggle with a, a victim mentality or victim ideology. And you and I have had right. some very deep, powerful conversations on this particular topic. But talk to me a little bit about where your head is at. How do you view that? And then further, how, how do you help people overcome that? Oh, well, the first part is identifying it. So at least in the way that I grew up, uh, seeing the world through a negative view was not seen as being pessimistic. It was seen as being real. Uh, now, here's the, here's the danger. So there's a lot of what would you call them, motivational experts or whatever, what have you, that's a, that say something very shallow like, be positive, look at the bright side of things. Uh, well, you're in, well, you're in poverty or in, in any other type of dire straits. Um, you know that's just bull crap. Anybody that can just switch gears and say, oh, things are positive now, um, they're just going to, they're usually, we see those people as dreamers and not in a good way, as people that have their heads in the sand, uh, and as people that generally don't take responsibility for anything in their life and just expect things to turn out well for them, and they usually don't. Um, so that message for people that are in actual dire straits doesn't doesn't ring true, partially because it's not. Um, so that's not the same thing, though, as a victim mindset in, in reality. So the way the victim mindset works is there's a difference between seeing the negative aspects of, of what's going on in your life and projecting those negative aspects of what's going on in your life. There's a difference between recognizing the reality that's around you and pretending that you're a prophet. Uh, it's the pretending you're a prophet um, that plays a large part in, in this entire I can't, right? It plays a large part in the assumptions that we make about what is what is possible, what we can do, um, things of that nature. So where my head is at with the victim mindset is first I, helping people to identify not just where they're seeing negativity, but where they're projecting negativity if that isn't actually true where they're projecting disempowerment that isn't actually there. Um, does that make sense? It does. Mm -hmm. How do you help people identify that? So there are keywords that they generally use, uh, can't being the primary word. Uh, whenever you see the word, or you see or hear the word can't, um, red flag, most likely that's that's not true. Uh, I very rarely come across a perfectly accurate description of can't. So whenever I say can't, uh, um, that automatically now brings up a red flag to me. Like, is that true? Really? Uh, let's break it down into those systematic little parts and find out what about that is accurate and what is not. And let's figure out the most empowering version of what you just said. And by empower, not I can do it, uh, but empowerment, like what parts of these chains can you not help? And what, what, what links in these chains do you have power to take action on? And what does it, that action look like? So often what that, what, that, what that means is 
so the victim mindset has has a secret power it's the it's the uh that short little dwarf guy in the wizard of oz he's behind the curtain right uh and as long as it can stay vague and and broad and and and, and smoky and you're just overwhelmed by the grandiose grandiosity of it um it gets to stay in power but when you <laughs> the moment you dig into details uh the facade starts to break down a little bit um so that has been the easiest tool that i'm aware of that i use to be able to help somebody question their victim mindset as we when you say can't okay let's write that down get the words on paper out of your head where it can still be surrounded by smoke and mirrors now it's on paper black and white you can read it to yourself right and let's break each and every single part of that sentence or paragraph down to find out which parts are accurate and if they're not accurate how can we make them more accurate and once we get down to the most accurate version now we go to the most helpful version and all that hope most helpful means is not denying reality that's where people mess up um, all the most helpful means is what parts of this can i take responsibility for right now and make changes to um, and that makes all the difference in the world it does and i think that there there has to be a significant amount of, of self-awareness right to realize that you're in that headspace and realize that you're struggling mm -hmm. but i like what you said about writing it down mm -hmm. and that's something that i have not gone to this level of detail but with people that i've i've friends or people that i've coached with things like that talk about the importance of of writing things down getting it out of this nebulous area in your head right and once you write it down it creates an environment where it's easier to break it down to analyze it and then start applying logic and saying well is that really the case right i can't do this well if i did this this and this i could do that thing right but until you write it down it just stays up here in this this cloud like you yeah. were talking about it's very interesting is that something that you've struggled with oh of course uh the entire point of coaching is you well that i'm aware of you know the entire point of coaching in this particular field uh those are generally the areas where somebody has experienced the most pain points and the biggest struggle in their own life uh, for example <laughs> if you want to have the best swim teacher you don't hire michael phelps that would be a terrible idea because he is a genetic phenom what you do is you hire the guy that shouldn't be good at swimming and is phenomenal at it because that person has broken down every single aspect and repped it out and figured out the best way to move you forward that guy's going to make you a better swimmer um so you don't you don't hire necessarily a, a tony robbins to help you speak you hire this shy generally socially awkward person uh that when he gets on stage blows the crowd away because that person has done the work has figured out every single aspect of body language and, and tonality he's going to be able to break things down for you and make you a better speaker um why whatever reason he became a speaker you don't know but what you do know is that was a pain point from him and he fixed it uh so long answer to a, a short question but yes i think that's that's very fitting and and i'm flashing back to years ago whenever i had to give a an executive presentation to all of the senior leaders of a business and mm -hmm. the first time i had to present it was on technology strategies probably five years ago five or six years ago something like that and i fortunately there was a podium 
for me to to hold on to and make sure that it didn't fly away. But that's all I did. I mean, I probably right. left dents in that podium from holding on to yeah. it and shaking, and my voice was trembling. And and then over the years, I've been through executive presentation courses and and just practiced and practiced. And and I now go to Toastmasters and things like that. But that was something that is very much out of my wheelhouse and way out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this a lot. Part of creating this podcast and the YouTube channel was to get out of my comfort zone, which I I do want to talk about comfort zone here in a little bit. But I want to circle back to something around how powerful language can be whenever you're struggling with this victim ideology the language that you use is is crucial in helping you overcome those challenges. Right. I'm curious on your perspective on that. Uh, so not to get too nerdy, but uh, this is where the postmodernists, uh, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, um, this is where they really took hold. And, and there's a lot that is false and a lot that is dangerous with them. However, um, just like anything else, a lot of it is because a good portion of it is 100% true. Um, and one of the things that they would say, did say, is that language... All right. <laughs> uh, one of the things that they, did, that they would say is that language defines your reality. And that is 100% true. Now, to really simplify it, they would break it down to the point where... <laughs> uh, there is no such thing as reality. Everything is a matter of perspective. Everything is a matter of power. Um, that, that end result is something I str- stridently disagree with. However, uh, it is not untrue that language does define your reality. Um, so I'll give you a point, uh, 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 an example. Let's say that I am having a, let's say I'm having a bad day and I go, and this happens uh, in, in poverty, I'm sure quite a lot. Um, let's have me having a, having a bad day and I walk into a store, right? Um, I'm already feeling, so I remember walking into, uh, this was in Pennsylvania, what was the store? J, J. Crew, is that, that, that's a store, right? I remember walking into J. Crew, I was just walking around on the phone um, and I don't like sitting down when I'm talking, I'm typical male that way, uh, I wanna do things. Uh, so, walked into there and just feeling wow these sweatshirts i think at the time were 80 dollars, and just felt this which is not true but the way i felt was i'm less than i can't afford i would have to save up for months to get a sweatshirt what kind of person am i um and this was after i was out so imagine somebody in that store is also having a bad day uh, and that person looks at me, or at least I think they're looking at me, and there's a look of maybe scorn, okay? Or a look of, that doesn't exactly say, oh, wow, I'm going to service this customer because I'm going to get a big commission check. Um, so here are the facts of that situation that I know. I walk into the store, a man looks at me, right? That's what I know. Um, and I also can see that maybe they're not paying attention or perhaps... Uh, they don't have a, they didn't look at me with positivity. That's what I know. Okay. Now what I perceive is not only what they, what they did or did not do, what I perceive is the meaning behind that. And in that meaning, 
the meaning I attribute to why they're doing something or why they're not doing something is something I actually do not know, right? This person could just be generally a lazy person that doesn't like taking care of anybody, right? Um, this person could be having a terrible day. Uh, you know this in the gym. Uh, this person could be looking dead at me and not see me at all. This this uh, thousand mile stare that people do in the middle of their day or in the middle of sets. I don't know what he's doing or why he's doing, why he made the look or whatever. Um, but what I told myself, the words I used is that, oh, he looks me looks at me as lesser than, or he looks at me, he can see that I'm poor. Um, which by the way, might be true. That That's that's the whole thing. What I'm perceiving might be true. The difference is I don't, I don't know that. But the words I use about what that experience is, oh, that guy's a pretentious asshole. I'm so that's my projection onto him. I'm a piece of crap. I'm poor. It's, it's obvious there's something I'm doing that's projecting that. Uh, all that milieu of conversation in my head, as well as the feelings that are associated with it, all that's made up. None of that is something that I know. So when I, if I were to put those words on paper and write down, which is not something really anybody does, but if I were to write that down on paper and write down what that meant on paper and then highlight what I actually know, um, I would be able to bring it down to something that's much more in line with, with reality and identify where the story is and where the story isn't. If I'm not doing that, however, my memory of that, and if I see that person on the street and, 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 the way that I tell myself um, of how I should do things in the future is colored by the words I used in my head and even maybe in conversation to somebody else about that moment, about what that thing meant. So it's not even looking at things through a different lens. People say rose-colored glasses or gray-colored glasses. It's more like seeing things with glasses and then putting putty all over it and then only remembering the putty. You, you textualized it, you texturized it, if that's even a word. And the memory and the, and the meaning that you're putting into that is almost entirely projection. Um, does that answer your question? It does. And one of the things that came to mind, and then I made a, a little note here, is I found it interesting how memories of events can even change over time. On a long enough timeline, we tell our story based on this perception right. or projection of any given event. And then on a long enough timeline, we we say it again, we say it again. And this is all like a memory loop that's occurring. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about this loop that's occurring in our mind and the story that we're telling ourselves, it, it can – actually, there's a note here that I think about it, a feedback loop, a perception feedback loop. Mm -hmm. which is basically this memory and the story that you're telling yourself, and it just starts to spiral and spiral and spiral, which can create an environment or a situation where somebody is just circling a drain. And, mm -hmm. and when they're circling that drain, man, it is hard, hard mm -hmm. to come out of it. It's right. like you're in, you're in a paddle boat and just paddling as hard as you can against it, but that current is so strong, it is just pulling you down. Right, and that's for the people that are paddling. Yeah. Those people, just, there's nothing I could do, and they just keep going. How do you overcome it? Uh, there's a few ways. Uh, the, the, the nicest way is to 
So it's called story work. It's where you put things down. There's a story in your head. And we can do this today if you want. There's a story in your head about an event. So you isolate the event. You put it down on paper. Okay? And you write down everything. It's it's almost stream of consciousness. This is what happened. This is what it meant. Da, 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 da. It could be very long. Um, so then you go in and you look at, you read it to yourself. Okay? Uh, and you read it out loud. And so now you're almost seeing things in the third person. So you're able to get some distance. So one, the fact that you have enough self-awareness to write something down, it shows you that there's, you understand that there's a problem there. You may not know what it is, but you know that this story is dragging you down. Um, so good job on that. You're writing things down. Step one was already accomplished when you decided to write things down. So you write, you write your story down. Uh, then the, in the writing of it, you're able to create distance. So as we were talking about before, you're no longer dealing with the smoke and the mirrors and the curtain. Uh, the wizard behind the curtain is now on paper. Now you're looking at it from a more objective standpoint, almost as if somebody else is saying it. Um, the next step is that you break the pattern. So often feedback loops are very, very... Uh, this is not a term, centrifugal effects. It's something you just kind of go with what's happening due to the momentum of it. We can very easily become drones in daily life. So we just kind of do what we do uh, and you can almost blank out an entire day because it's so, you didn't have to engage with it at all. Um, so what you do is you break the pattern. Once you see it, then you breathe differently and you speak at a different tone. So. Uh, all that does, so if I read this right now, and this is the story that I have about this situation, I read it at the speed that I'm talking at right now, I'm still tapped into my, into my nervous energy, and I'm just reading. I'm just reading. Now, if I slow the pace of how I'm reading, maybe down to 75% or so, now the reality of what I am reading has to come out. The words now have time to percolate and reveal their meaning. Um, and in cases like that, that's, that's often where someone breaks down. Uh, the tears, tears come out. Um, the next thing to do is you break down each section, uh, separate them. In between statements of fact or, or between statements, you breathe. So not only are you speaking at a lower rate to break the pattern, you're, you're purposely breaking the momentum. This is not the pattern that I usually talk or live. Then you breathe between each one, or between each statement. You really, really let it percolate. At this point, not only have you written down, so therefore you're in a third person, you're able to see the story more objective. You've slowed down and you've separated things and breathed deeply between statements. So this is all very practical. Um, in so doing, you create the maximum amount of space to be able to identify the problem. And in doing that, you're able to parse out what is true, what is not really true, what's a story, what's reality. Uh, and then you can start changing the story. Um, 
to something more along the lines of I can't get in shape. Um, this is really simplistic, but I can't get in shape can because of uh, eventually turns into a realization. Well, I can get up at seven in the morning. I can do a push up every 30 minutes, just whatever ridiculous little thing that you can do. Um, and while you're identifying what you can do, you're also divesting yourself of the negative meanings and projections that you were placing on the stories you were telling yourself that and telling yourself about it. So now what you have is not only something that is more accurate and true to form, uh, true to the reality as it is, but it's also something wherein you're able to find an actionable step. You broke the pattern, you found the accuracy, and now you have an action, actionable steps uh, that you can take or realities that you you were unaware of that you're able to realize in terms of positive things about yourself. Um, there's a lot there, but that's that's one way that you can go about using words to get yourself out of the feedback loop. I wish I had known that about 20 years ago. <laughs> yes, so does everybody. <laughs> right. But I think that the thing for me that resonated as you were kind of going through and talking through what that process looks like, how how to pull yourself out of these dark places that we, we find ourselves in, all comes down to those actionable steps. Mm-hmm. Write it down. Right. Read it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Start taking this this more of a analytical and, and logic-based approach to mm-hmm. solving this problem and, and try to detach emotionally from the problem or the situation at, right. at hand. Hmm. How did you learn all of this? Uh, so I'm very fortunate. So part of being in the fitness community, you come across a lot of coaches. Um, I went through the Strong Coach program. Uh, they went through a little bit of this. The practical steps that I'm talking about now uh, were something I learned in a coaching program called Enlifted. Um, so I'm Enlifted Level 3 certified. So that's the the top level, if you will. Um, and there's a guy named Mark England that goes through things like that. Uh, and this was backed up because, I, as I said earlier, I'm a very curious person, so I read uh, arguably too much. And this was backed up by uh, a lot of the readings I had done on archetypes, uh, on psychology, um, on on behavior change. Uh, so that was one of the certifications I had before. So everything that I learned there was an agreement and it was in a way piecing together uh, what I had already learned in trying to figure out the problems and how to fix those problems. Wow, that's impressive. Let's talk a little bit about hacking the lizard brain. So this is a term that I've heard. I think I heard it on the Joe Rogan podcast a a while back, and they were talking about Mm -hmm. social media and the polarity that it is causing, or polarization, I should say, that it is causing in society overall. So what does that mean? So... I don't know the context of the Joe Rogan one, but uh, in the way that I'm aware of it, the the lizard brain is 
to put it very simply, your your very instinctual, primal survival part of you. It's there to identify threats, uh, react to them, right? Um, so there's a lot of things that, and I'm, I'm assuming in the social media episode, they probably spoke about this. Uh, they There's a lot of things that we, how to say this? So if you're in the social media, your, your, your lizard brain does not know what's going on. It is very binary. It's threat escape, uh, threat fight, whatever, whatever the case may be, your particular reaction. Uh, whatever you're doing that creates that threat um, is what the lizard brain reacts to. So if you're on social media and people start piling onto you, your lizard brain has no idea that it's purely in the realm of ethereal uh, nature. There's nothing actually happening. There's no tiger that's in a bush that you just heard. Uh, these are people, uh, perhaps even bots, that are piling on you on social media and your cortisol levels go up, your social, um, your idea of uh, social cohesion is getting broken up and you just, you feel attacked. All that it takes for you to feel physically attacked in terms of, for lizard brain purposes is for you to have those stress hormones go up, okay? So that doesn't take much. So for example, in much the same way that I was talking earlier about slowing down your rate of speech, breathing, right? What are some of the things that we know about the lizard brain, and I'm going to continue using that because of life, make, I, I have completely lost the term for the actual part of the brain that does this. Uh, uh, no, it's not that part. So basically, whenever you breathe heavily, so let's say I start talking at a, at a, at a high rate of at a high rate of speed, I'm, I'm like a Who's that guy? Ben Shapiro. I'm like boom, 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 boom. And my breathing is in my chest and I'm tight here and it's not hitting my diaphragm very well and I'm breathing heavily. Well, those are all things that I would do if I spot a tiger, right? So the lizard brain, that's all it knows is I am stressed out, okay? So what's it do? Spikes all your hormones even more. It gets you ready to fight or flight, right? Now, in, ha in realizing this, we are aware, now those things are all beneficial. There's a reason that you should be pulling up oxygen as quickly as you can. And the reason that you should be spiking adrenaline right when you're under an actual threat. These are positive things in a real life dangerous situation um, or can be positive. They can also be very negative depending on your reaction. Uh, however, knowing this, we can basically reverse it and engineer backwards. So let's say that I am talking about a problem and I'm talking very quickly and you can tell them the, bre the breath is trapped, trapped in the upper part of my chest and, and my back is tight and, and all these things that would happen because I'm, I'm very, 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 very stressed. Um, I am portraying signs. So this is a twofold thing. I'm not only portraying signs that the lizard brain, the fight or flight act, fight or flight part of that is activated. I'm also reinforcing that fight or flight by doing so, right? Uh, because all it's seeing is the in, intake and all it can see is the, the stress and the breathing and all the things, right? So I am stressed, that causes my physiological reaction, that physiological re reaction feeds back right into 
the lizard brain. It just it keeps going. So how do you break that? So simple, not easy. You realize that's happening. You slow down your rate of speech. When you slow down your rate of speech, the lizard brain is now seeing, oh, okay, this is not in the norm for someone that's in a stressful situation. Big part of slowing down your rate of speech is slowing down your breath, taking deep breaths. Oh, somebody prepping for a assault by a panther is probably not going to be. They're probably so now. Now the feedback loop is getting breaks made into it, right? So if I realize that I'm not about to face off a roving gang of hyenas. I can start acting in a way that is more appropriate to me talking to you or me meditating or me reading a book. And now my physiological signs, I may still have the stress of a whatever social media pile on or whatever like that. But now my physiological signs are feeding back into my lizard brain that all is well. Take a moment, calm down. And in so doing, so the lizard brain floods your brain with chemicals that basically fight or flight, fight or flight. Try thinking clearly in a very precise manner in fight or flight mode, right? You get rid of that fighter or at least dampen that fight or flight mode. Now you're able to see a lot more clearly, a lot more accurately. You're able to divest your things yourself of concepts or ideas that are actually accurate and be able to solve the problem. So part of so part of hacking the lizard brain is breaking that feedback loop by physiologically doing things that don't make sense in the context of fleeing or fighting. I'm picking up on an underlying theme of this conversation. And when you think about stressors that occur in our life, whether they're financial in nature or being attacked on social media platforms or being attacked by a, a gang of hyenas. There's a few things that, that kind of come to mind here is the importance of one self-awareness. Right. And once you, you can recognize what is going on and is the threat real or perceived right the importance of taking action and that action can be as simple as taking a deep breath mm -hmm. forcing yourself to count to 10 backwards or you know whatever the whatever the thing is but taking a moment to just breathe and process through all of it and it seems that whether that's financial stressors and, and kind of like I was just talking about, the, the theme here is is very powerful because we all have stressors in our life. Mm -hmm. it, they come in a myriad of different forms and fashions and things like that. If you have the level of self-awareness to be able to recognize in the moment, that's key. And you said it, mm -hmm. simple, not easy. Right. It is. And it's something that in recent years – I've started to learn how to do, and it's been extremely beneficial for me. But I also think back 
10, 15, 20 years ago, it was not simple to me. You get so wrapped up in the heat of the moment and you're right. like just in that fight or flight mode. And some people explode into arguments and raising their voice or th that's a protection mechanism and others just completely shut down and introvert and mm -hmm. don't do anything. It's not me at all. <laughs> but being able to recognize that, I think the key there for me is is being able to recognize it and then knowing what steps to take to be able to kind of overcome that immediate threat, whether it's real or perceived. Now, if it's real, you don't really have as much time. If a lion is coming at you, you don't want to stop and breathe. Right. <laughs> so right, you have right. to be able to quickly assess, is this real or a perceived threat? Well, that's what's interesting. Assuming the lion's not already charging, in which case, good luck. Uh, hope you have a spear and, and some good reflexes. Um, however, what's interesting, so fight or flight is really good, really helpful in, in a variety of contexts. But what's interesting is the person that is able to breathe, someone that spots the lion, if that person gets into their feelings and gets into their, into their and by feelings, I mean like chemical feelings, like gets ramped up and ready to go, because that clouds the brain, because you have one thing that you got to do, get away or kill the kill the threat right um you are less likely to succeed right that's why in a hunt you don't amp yourself up and go in a hunt regardless of what weapon you're using or what process you're taking the whole idea is to be calm to be the stalker um because that is the pro that is the manner in which you're able to assess the situation in as complete and objective a way as possible see different scenarios and take action, um, take the appropriate action. So even in a fight situation or a flight situation, taking that moment to, to breathe, to slow down, assuming you have a minute uh, to do so, even in actual life or death situations, that is more likely to get you out of that life or death situation than if you were to tap into the natural feedback loop of the fight or flight, much less when it comes to social media, stresses at work, family, finances, what have you. I'm going to go down a little bit of a tangent here. I have some friends and colleagues and people that have even been on the show that have a military background. And one of the things that we've discussed, not specifically on the show, but one of the things I've discussed with them is the power of habit and building habits. And I don't really know how my mind went here, but I think about in military training, they, and I don't know at what point in military training they teach you this stuff, but they'll put you in, in very stressful and high tense situations kind of to practice. And they teach you the skills necessary to know how to be calm, be objective and, and carry out the, the mission or, or the objective. So it kind of just becomes second nature and habit. And I saw a video online a few, a few months ago of, of, I guess, a retired Navy SEAL or, or something. He was just standing in a grocery store in a, in a gas station. He's just standing in line and somebody comes in with a gun to rob the store. And he turns around and just looks at him. And within a split second, he grabs the gun from the guy and just knocks him out. Right. He, he didn't freak out. He was calm and collected. He, he saw the threat and said, oh, all right. And he knew exactly what to do. It was just, it was just a reaction for him. Now, 
for those of us that don't have the opportunity to train for situations like that, and I think it just comes to getting the reps in. You touched on earlier about just the importance of getting reps in. Is there any other way to get comfortable with doing something like that? Not necessarily protecting a, a convenience store, but to be able to figure out, okay, how do I start this? How do I start doing this? Well, that's the second order. Uh, the first order is recognizing when you're in a stress state, stressed state, stressed state in general, and that is, uh, you can do that through, oh, I feel stressed, or for people like me that like to deny their feelings uh, naturally, <laughs> uh, you realize, oh, I'm breathing differently, or I'm speaking differently, and that's a red flag. Maybe I'm stressed. Let me check on that. Uh, so that is what to do in any situation. Uh, that you find yourself or any stressor that you find yourself in is to be able to break the pattern, to break the feedback loop, if you will. Uh, what they teach in the military uh, and in any field where they expect you to be competent in stressful situations is they teach competence. So the difference between being able to get out of a fight or flight feedback loop based on a particular uh, stressor, like what is the actual, and be able to identify what is the actual threat, how might be able to, is it a threat, how might be able to get through it, yada, yada. Um, what they're teaching in that regard is once you realize you're gonna be in situations of that nature uh, is competency. So now, so the, the Navy SEAL that takes out the guy in, in the convenience store, he his lizard brain doesn't really go off. Uh, because his perception of that threat is way lower than the perception of that threat to somebody that's in the back of the store that sees that guy that was just trying to pick up milk or something, right? Um, so that's a different way to approach that. And that is the is the identifying the situation and ripping out, uh, ripping out what you need to do to create competence or at the very least perceived competence. Um, that is an, an that is a second order. That's a training, training thing that often begins with an identification of where am I stressed, where am I stressed out now, and or what situations am I likely to be in that I need to prepare for. So preparation and competence uh, generally vastly diminish the perception of threat um, that you, so that this whole feedback loop doesn't even get started. So there's identifying the feedback loop, identifying when that, that has happened between the lizard brain, your physiology, and then there's, and that's this whole separate thing. And then there's identifying those situations that you wanna be prepared for and training to competence. Um, whenever I think it does, and whenever I, I think about, okay, how does this apply to those of us that don't have any sort of military training, but we work in stressful businesses or functional domains. What comes to mind for me is just the experiences that I've had over the years, servers going down, networks going down, just the, the, the anxiety that occurs and the, and the chaos or perceived chaos that ensues when something, when the business is down and they can't operate. Right. And whenever I, I think back over my 20-year career in, in technology, the first decade or so, I was it was almost a panic just trying to fumble my way through it. Well, now, if there's a situation where there's there's an outage, 
there's not much of a panic. It's just calm, collected. Okay, here's what we do. We do this. Let's start here. Let's notify the people in the business. So you know what to do. And that comes with experience and time. And as much as I wish, I made a comment earlier about how I wish I'd known this stuff earlier in my life. I think that, you know, what's funny about this is, is the people that are listening to the show, you might have experiences and we could sit here till we're talk about it till we're blue in the face about it. But until you experience it, it's a whole different thing. And so whenever I think about teaching people how to remain calm in those situations, that that's challenging to do until they experience it themselves. You can talk them through it and say, hey, kind of give them some guidance so that they see almost street signs so that they can recognize in the moment. But being able to maintain your composure and stay calm and collected and know how to execute it, it just, I suspect that has to come with time and experience. Uh, yes and no. So usually yes. Uh, there's a short, there's shortcuts that you can take though, right? So let's say that you're, I don't know, almost nothing about IT, at least in the vein you're in. Um, let's say that servers are down, or let's say that you know that part of your job is to make things work if the servers go down to get them back online. So what you could do is, so there's this thing, this concept, I believe Tim Ferriss coined it, called fear setting. You take all of your fears before they even happen, I mean, ideally before they happen, you take all of your fears of worst case scenarios and you just assume they're true. So once again, kind of like the victim consciousness, a lot of fear what we really fear in general is the unknown. Oh, if this happens, I'll be ruined. Okay, well, okay, this happens. Now what? Okay, so we're so scared of approaching and we're trying to avoid where this happens that we don't delve into, we don't face, the, kind of like if a, I think this is a therapy thing. A therapist will tell you if you're having continual nightmares, uh, one way to beat the nightmares is to, in your dream, turn around and face the monster. And nine times out of nine, that monster either becomes a little pipsqueak or just disappears. So the beauty of that is you can do this ahead of time. Face the monster you fear. Um, so what I don't mean by that is go break the server yourself to get in reps, right? Uh, it's not a great idea. <laughs> what I do mean by that is, okay, server goes down and it's my first day on the job. And just imagine everything, and we're pretty good at this, everything that could go wrong. Just imagine it all. Okay, that's true. Now what? And you will, if, if you can put it on paper, even better. Um, and now you're able to say, okay, once you face it in your mind, that becomes something that in a sense is very real to you and now it's objective and you can say okay well the server went down i arrived late there's coffee all over my shirt i don't know why the server is down and just imagine the worst case scenario breathe as if the scenario was happening and then tell yourself whatever the next what what can i do what's the very next step in that scenario and you might be wrong uh, you might be incorrect you might have to do a lot of editing as you as you go but the point was you face the monster and so you go through these scenarios now what's interesting is let's say that happens server goes down and it's a completely different different scenario 
you're still going to have a much lower adrenal response and fear response to that scenario because you faced it already right it, it's kind of like that i uh, that old story about the uh sets of navy soldiers that went and played basketball and they were going to see who could shoot the most or the most accurate free throws so there was one person one group of people that practiced every day uh, there was the other group of people that were on the ship so they couldn't and so they did nothing and there was a third group of people that were also on the ship and so but every night they would do a hundred free throws in their mind right it's the same concept and when they came back they were actually if i'm not mistaken they were slightly better at the free throws than the people that practiced every single day so even processing that through your brain is usually enough to be able to give you a much better, more accurate, more helpful reaction when those things do take place. Uh, because to your brain, they already did take place. Once again, there's many parts of your brain that have no idea what's going on. All they can see is chemical inputs and, and things of that nature. They can't put it into context. So when you come across a broken server, you've already gone into that scenario in your brain of all the worst case scenarios assumed to be true what do I do now? Your brain thinks this is time number 21. You're the only one that knows that it's time number one. And this brain is a lot better at handling that situation than the person that just comes into it. Whenever I think about how that applies in the, in the business world, and this is something that I've, I've done quite a few times, is building disaster recovery plans or business continuity plans. You, you, you put together a document with feedback from all key individuals and leaders and say, okay, if this happens, if a tornado comes through and, and knocks this building out and we've got these servers in it and this stuff goes down, how are we going to respond? What are those next steps? And you map out those next steps. And then part of that process is also sitting down and doing tabletop exercises and saying, okay, Josiah, here, if this, okay, tornado, tornado just came through, wiped out the building. All right, Josiah, here's your steps are five through 15. And then Brinkley over here has steps 20 through 23 or whatever that looks like. And you kind of go through that. So it gives you those reps in, in a situation where it's not an actual real threat. So I get that. Okay. All right. Cheat code. And we, and we know that from a group standpoint, a leadership standpoint, what we usually don't know about, know about in terms of daily, daily life context, what happens if somebody looks at me in the store, weirdly, what happens when I go into the gym and I don't know what I'm doing. And I swear the person 50 feet away on the treadmill is staring directly at me. Um, those social situations that we assume we're going to be in, if we take a moment and just assume them to be true, fear set him. Like there's goal setting and there's fear setting. Assume that person is on the treadmill glaring at me with a judgmental look and absolutely they have nothing but disdain for me. That's true. Now what? In every situation, things that we know on, on, that work in business and in military, military context, and they often apply at a very personal context in, the, in terms of threat situations or perceptions. Okay, I've got a note here. I'm just going to bring this full circle. How the language we use sets us up to either empower responsibility or disempower us into bondage. What does that mean to you? 
So back into it. So if the language you are using written down or in your head about a particular situation is full of I can'ts or this is being done to me uh, or I can't control like that general milieu of powerlessness. Um, you, you are basically completely enslaved. Um, you're locked up. There's nothing you can do because you don't think you can do it. Um, so whenever you're, so, and this, this goes so deep. Um, this is the one area where people most often abdicate uh, what I would call freedom, right? They see, or even a lot of times, especially now, they're trained to see ways in which these certain structures or these certain people or this certain uh, way of the world is preventing you, stopping you, holding you back. This is very replete within people who are poor. Certainly not all of them, but many, right? Where you were just assumed this, this cannot be done. It's not even a question. So the language we use can take the form of, kind of like I said in the book, ah, oh, that's for rich people. It's just cast aside. It's just, oh, you make the assumption, you move on. You never delve into that. Uh, so in that scenario, are you at all empowered to do that thing? That, came, that, that thing came up for a reason. You don't like the way you look or how you feel or how you're eating um, or you got bad news from the doctor or whatever the case may be. Um, there's a reason that came up and it was dismissed by, oh, that's for rich people. Okay. Um, how empowering is that? Not at all. Some you the actions that you will then take are the same exact actions as if you were a slave, and your master told you, "No, you can't do that," and on pain of death and suffering, you just don't. Right? You would not, based on the actions someone takes, there is no difference between the slave being told not to do something by the master and the person who just doesn't do that because they can't. Right? Um, and the language you use, and often it's not, oh, I, it, it's I can't do things, uh, or those people did that because they're fill in the blank. Those people can do that because they're fill in the blank. Uh, I can't do that because I'm fill in the blank. Uh, whatever form it takes is always, always a form of disempowerment. You are prevented, you are blocked, you are held back. Um, and the reasons that we give validity to uh, for why that is actually true, at least true in our minds, you can expand. And the, this is actually a problem. The more intelligent you are, the gra greater amount of excuses you can come up with for why this is not possible, right? Um, so eventually you think a, a mark of intelligence to problematize things. Oh, well, man, there's actually this thing over here that you didn't think about that's actually stopping me from doing this. Uh, that's, that's not true. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be true. Um, and once again, that disempowerment is, is, is 
seen in the fact that there's no action or there's an action in the in the in different direction than what you wanted to what do you wanted to fix or to do uh, language can also empower you and so as shallow as that may sound I mean, you just be empowered right that's every motivational speaker regardless of how good they are they always say something like that um, so empowerment is not ignoring reality uh, language that ignores reality is equally useless right um, but language that empowers you is something that allows you to move in the direction or to the accomplishment of something that you actually want even if it's by a scrappy tiny little margin so language that empowers you does not ignore the realities of of being held back or being oppressed or being um, actively worked against whatever the case may be what it does is clarifies things breaks it down into the the, the links in the chain all the little details finds the assumptions to where you can and then finds the things that aren't actually true or aren't actually accurate sees what you can do in those areas and if it's a millimeter or an inch that you can move and sometimes that's all it takes you do that and long story short that can lead to empowerment that inch turns into a foot turns into a mile you just needed the momentum to start moving but in order for you to have the momentum you needed to find the thing that you could take action on no matter how small it is if you have a hard time brushing your teeth and you keep forgetting every day I can brush one tooth right no story over here is going to convince you that one tooth cannot be brushed well, what happens if you brush one tooth you're just like oh, I'm here the whole all of them get brushed right um, that's a simplistic example but the principle holds true in that identifying the tiny things the tiny things that you can do to move forward is often all it takes to move in that in, in that direction um, where all these things are true and I'm still moving forward all these people are against me and I'm still getting in better shape I'm still better at my presentations I'm still uh, more competent at this area of server maintenance whatever the case may be um, so all these things can be true all these negative things can be true and I know that one inch I can take control of right now and I'm going to take take that inch uh, so in the the man's search for meaning the book by Viktor Frankl tiny book incredibly impactful um, this is a guy that are you familiar with it okay so he's a Holocaust survivor he was actually in Auschwitz if I'm not mistaken um, many people dying all around him from starvation from the gas chambers um, from firing squads it's a terrible thing in this scenario you are as that you have as little freedom as you possibly could have um, in terms of the general idea of freedom of you can do what you want in this scenario you absolutely 100% cannot do what you want right so that would be the definition of slavery right and in that Viktor Frankl um, he came up with this thing called logotherapy that's what he was known for after he got out um, but in that scenario he's able to say you have a moment between the stimulus and in his case it'd be 
the guards shouting at them or 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 uh, commanding them to do something uh, or seeing a friend die or whatever the case may be the really tragic really hopeless situation and your response and no one can take that away from you the more you abdicate your responsibility to respond and the more that's the whole point of responsibility the ability to respond that is the last bastion and the first seed of freedom uh, and no matter what you're trying to do so stimulus comes down you were literally hopeless helpless whatever like that but at the very least in auschwitz concentration camp i have the freedom to choose how i respond to this no concentration guard can do anything about that no system can do anything about that no enemy can do anything about that no personal defect on my end can do anything about that short tall strong weak fat skinny whatever um I have the ability to choose to respond. So when it's all broken down, when all of your freedom is absolutely 100% taken away, freedom in the sense of I can do what I want, because that's usually a lot of times libertarian or not libertinism uh, is what people view as freedom. No one can tell me what to do. Well, in a scenario where they absolutely can, you can find that one inch of freedom in that they said to do this or they're doing this to me, or this is happening, and I have the ability to choose my response. So if you can have that freedom in the worst of situations where you, you have no choice in basically anything, you can choose to empower yourself with that same freedom in every other circumstance of life. Financial stressors, uh, the way you the way you eat, uh, attacks you're getting on social media, your corporate relationships, your familial relationships, all that, you always have the freedom to choose how to respond. And often it is just that inch. Now, thankfully, Viktor Frankl survived and he was able to bring this wisdom to us. It is often that inch that allows you to get to, like I said, the foot and the mile. Uh, once you abdicate that inch, though, that is where the victim ideology is sinister. That is where the victim mindset, where, oh, you're, it's not your fault. You couldn't do this because, name five things. All five of those things could be true. The message that I'm telling that person, oh, you can't because, is evil. And the reason I say it's evil is yet there might be a burden released. Like, oh, you're right. It wasn't my fault. The point is not fault. The point is not to say that you are, you are the person that was at fault. Maybe you blamed yourself, and then I tell you, you couldn't do this because of five different things. Now you don't blame yourself. <sighs> this is where it gets. This is where it gets tricky. You feel that release. Ah, oh, it's not my fault. If you stay there, you're in a very evil place. Now you're in a very helpless place. What else is not my fault? And you find this great liber liberation. Oh, nothing's my fault. That's not the point. The five things that are holding you back, the 50 things that are holding you back. The point is not whether or not they're your fault. The point is, can you respond to them? The point is taking responsibility and taking responsibility is not about taking fault away from others or abdicating others of their responsibility for all the bad things that they do. The point is, this is your last bastion. This is your, this is your first moment and final moment of freedom is to say, it's not my fault. It is my responsibility. Those are entirely different things because in my responsibility is once again the ability to respond 
in how I view things and how I think about things and how I do things. And no one can take that away from you except for yourself. And if you give that up, nothing's my fault. The world is against me. I can't do things. You, by every definition, by somebody that was able to look at you and your reactions and how and your actions and how you view the world, you are a slave. By all, you might as well be locked up in chains. There's whips ready to go after you. You are absolutely in chains because that person who believes they are a slave to all these things around them will act as a person who was a slave with all those things around them. So that's the, if you want to boil it down, why the book is important to me, why nutrition and fitness was something I got into, why uh, I'm prepping for law school and, and, and the things that I'm doing and the things that I want to impart, it's I'll teach you chip tip, teach you tips and teach you tricks, uh, teach you ways of thinking, ways of breathing, ways of slowing things down. Uh, all I actually want to do is give you the tools and resources and mindset necessary to be able to recognize this, the space in between the stimulus and response. Because if all you have in life is that, you can be free. The moment you give that away, everything can be taken away from you. Everything. There's nothing you have left. So it is very, very vitally important that we have that ability and we understand that ability and we hold on to that ability to respond. And we don't give that up to any system, any person, any situation, um, regardless of how true and how much of a threat they are. Because once again, to beat a dead horse, taking responsibility is entirely about freedom and nothing to do with taking blame. This is what I love about our conversations. This is deep, meaningful, and, and impactful stuff that, that we cover. For those of you listening, this is the type of stuff that Josiah and I talk about in the store. We go down rabbit holes. We talk about this this type of powerful stuff. And and I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to come sit down on the show. I know it's taken a... We've been trying to schedule this for, oh man, eight months now, six, eight months, something like that. I truly appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your wisdom that you have been able to accumulate over the years. How do people contact you? Um, <laughs> they can, I check my Instagram DMs uh, perhaps once a day. Uh, so I'm at Josiah Plumley on Instagram. Uh, you can also contact me. Yeah, Josiah Plumley on Instagram. That'd be the, the best way to do so. All right, perfect. Before we finish this up, is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, a, just a reiteration of the point I just attempted perhaps clumsily uh, to elucidate, and that is the refusal. It, it is so important. Now, in current times, particularly in the last several years, it has become more important than ever um, with the temptation being greater than it ever has been for quite a few people, if not the majority of people, to lay the blame, to lay everything at the feet of others, other people, other corporations, other systems, whatever the case may be, in terms of that are holding you back or keeping you down or uh, 
threatening you or whatever the case may be. The point is not to diminish that. The point is not to say that those things aren't true. That's positive talk that has no use, no value. Um, but in your life, if you can take a moment and breathe, and there's a bunch of tools and resources you can find to make yourself better at this, but if you can take the moment and commit to yourself that you will always, in every chance that you can, take responsibility in every way that you can and use that as a, as a vector towards freedom and actually view that as ultimate freedom, you will find much more <laughs> peace. Uh, you'll find much more, you'll be able to spot more ways that you can act or be in the world that you would prefer. Uh, the, the benefits are all over the place. Um, but that is the one thing that if there is one thing that you take from this conversation, it's always give yourself and hold on to your ability to respond, taking responsibility in every way that you can in every situation um, that you can. And in so doing, holding tightly to what it means to be free. Thank you. So powerful. I just, again, I can't thank you enough. Always enjoy our conversations. And yes, they do get deep and long-winded at times, but mm -hmm. man, they, they, I absolutely just truly enjoy them. Thank you. Appreciate you. For all of you listening and watching, thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully this episode brought you as much value as it did me and y'all have a good one.